Hi, my name is Luke Breverton, and this is the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, which focuses on the history and contemporary practice of organizing in democratic politics. Central to this, however, are two other concerns. The first is to explore how organizing connects democracy and religious institutions, particularly at a local congregational level. The second is to examine how organizing embodies a distinctive vision and practice of democratic politics, one in which congregations, along with other local institutions, can play a key role. With its focus on institutions, this episode really addresses head-on these two concerns. The podcast itself is a collaboration between the Industrial Areas Foundation, or IEF, Duke Divinity School, and the Keenan Institute for Ethics. Building on the previous episodes on power and leadership, and as I already mentioned, in this, the sixth episode in the series, I examine the place of institutions in organising, discussing what is an institution, how and why they are central to the kind of democratic politics organising undertakes. I'll be discussing these matters with Martin Trimble and Reverend Patrick O'Connor. Martin is co-director of the Industrial Areas Foundation. He's directly responsible for the IAF's organising work east of the Mississippi River, supervising and starting local IAF affiliates and recruiting and training organisers. He has organised for over 25 years on the ground with the IAF in Pennsylvania, Delaware, Washington, D.C., Virginia and North Carolina. Prior to organising, Martin was the founding director of Opportunity Finance Network, which supports and provides standards for financial institutions that invest in affordable housing and community development work nationwide. Reverend Patrick O'Connor grew up and received his theological education in the West Indies. He is currently the lead pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Jamaica, a multicultural congregation in the Presbytery of New York City. He has served this congregation since 1992, and under his leadership, First Presbyterian is involved in the development of the Tree of Life, a $74 million affordable mixed-income housing development that includes a community space and a healthcare facility. His leadership, though, extends beyond the congregation to the Presbytery of New York City and the General Assembly of his denomination and he's co-chair of the Metro Industrial Areas Foundation leadership team, chairman of Queen's Power, a director of the Greater Jamaica Development Corporation, and chairman of the First Jamaica Community and Urban Development Corporation, as well as being a member of the Board of Trustees of the Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. So he brings a wealth of experience in running institutions and building coalitions between them. Look forward to talking to them and join me now on this, the Listen, Organise, Act podcast. So, uh, Martin Trimble, uh, Reverend Patrick O'Connor, it's fantastic to have you on the Listen, Organise, Act podcast. Uh, Really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to me today about this very um, seemingly boring but also contested issue of institutions and their role in democratic politics. So um, I just want to begin, though, with a little bit about yourselves. And so uh, beginning with you, uh, Reverend O'Connor, can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how did you kind of encounter the world of organizing and get involved in in organizing as a leader? I'm Patrick O'Connor. I was born in Kingston, Jamaica and grew up in rural Jamaica. I'm a product of the Presbyterian Church in Jamaica, which really in our community was the gift of a missionary endeavor where the Presbyterians believed that through creating institutions, they could uh, strengthen communities. And our folks took it and ran with it. I think that was a critical formative experience. And then I had a boarding school experience where every level of the boarding school students learned to lead and to run the institution. And so I think those are my two formative critical experiences. Right. And so how did did that, you you obviously... Um, became came a, a 
figure here, uh, you know, leader here in in the states um, of Presbyterian churches. How how did the kind of connection to organizing come about? When I came to First Presbyterian Church in Jamaica in 1992, we wanted to be part of Queen Citizens Organization. And then the fight was to create a high-quality supermarket in Southeast Queens. And, you know, in the Black community, people were getting what I call D and E-grade food. And we wanted an A-grade supermarket. And individuals on their own couldn't do it. But when the leaders of Queen Citizens Organization came together, they were instrumental in getting the city of New York to purchase land from a big telephone company, 9X at the time, donated the land for $1. And now we have one of the best supermarkets anywhere in Queens and Long Island, created by institution and their lead, institution leaders. Right, right, right. Wow. But so, Martin, tell, tell me, where did you grow up and, and what, what was your movement into organizing? Um, so I grew up in Philadelphia, uh, born and raised there. My dad, uh, who recently died um, in September, uh, was an Episcopal priest. And my mom was the daughter of a first-generation immigrant. My grandmother came to this country when she was 14 through Ellis Island and ended up in Dunkirk, New York, which is south of uh, Buffalo. And I think I, both of them were really responsible for me being an organizing. Uh, one, uh, my dad uh, had his entire ministry in the Diocese of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And um, during the Civil Rights Movement, our bishop, uh, Reverend, uh, Red Reverend Robert DeWitt, um, helped lead the Civil Rights Movement in Philadelphia. And my, I worshipped him as a leader and went to the first inaugural protest at Gerard College, which, if you don't know, it is a city-run boarding school in Philadelphia that was segregated, and so I think it was just in me. Um, and right. growing up in those in that uh, era, um, so I think that was my um, my my background, or you know, the soil in which you know my commitment to organizing began to grow. Right, 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 right. And so, tell me a little bit. You you were involved in supporting community development uh, and and in institutions who were investing in and, and lending to affordable housing schemes. And then you moved from that into the IAF. How, how did that come about? You know, that really actually came about in my own um, uh, uh, revival in my own faith. But, you know, I moved back to Philadelphia after having been away about 10 years, and I uh, joined a predominantly African-American Episcopal Church in 18th and Diamond Streets, which is about 10 blocks from my house. Uh, ironically, I actually bought a house right next to Gerard College. Uh, and I used to walk to church, and um, this was in the mid-'80s, and Philadelphia was hemorrhaging people and jobs. Um, and uh, you know, the neighborhood in which our church was located uh, was surrounded by 40,000 abandoned homes. The only functioning institution in the neighborhood was uh, the church, the local public school, and about 12 blocks away, uh, Temple University, uh, which was holding on for its life. And, you know, in the midst of that, you know, I was making loans to, for affordable housing and daycare and things like that. And I just realized that, um, you know, North Philly wasn't poor because it didn't have an access, access to credit. It didn't have power. And then my pastor, uh, Father Isaac Miller, who had been the chaplain at Morehouse and a student activist there, invited me to a meeting with uh, Mike Eakin, who had come down from uh, New York to explore whether it'd be possible to, you know, is there any appetite in Philly to organize? And then I rediscovered my agency and my own politicalness um, and faith, actually. Right. The two, them, them coming together in in a wonderful way. So, so Reverend O'Connor, let me. You've 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 spoken very wonderfully about the kind of importance of institutions in your formation. Tell me a little bit, a little bit about a kind of some key institutions that very specific institutions that have that have shaped you and and how you've come to think about what is an institution. How do you how do you define that term? I think the church in Jamaica and the the church here in the U.S. has made me into the person I am, both in terms of 
faith and values, but also teaching about the power of relationships and the power of a community to create change and to create opportunities for people. My folks grew up poor, and yet the church, and specifically the Presbyterian Church, promoted education as a way of moving forward. And, you know, here in New York City, I've seen that when Black folks were shut out of multiple institutions, churches were there as a place where people could not only grow in their faith development, but grow in their personal and professional development. And organizing with other leaders and building relationships, create opportunities for themselves and their children and the extended communities. So the church has been the foundational institution. Right, right, right. So that that it provides in some ways a, a place to stand in a context where constantly your ability to act for yourself and with others is being taken away from you or, you know, not being recognized. And so the church provides this both kind of physical, legal, um, social space in which you can act with and for others. And also a a place in which you really build power. I think, you know, the the dilution of religion that's occurring now is that it's an individualistic personal pursuit but the 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 whole if if you go back to the days of the scriptures and the days of jesus he he created a community and and through the community they had power and the, the, the and the power of the community was a threat to rome and to the world at that time and so Christians saw themselves as not just individual servants of God, but that as a community working together, they could do transformation in the world. And so in 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 my foundations, I I think the church has given me that sense of value and the idea that it's not individual power, but it is collective power that matters. Right, right, right. right. So, Martin, turn to you. So, can you give me? Can you? Do you have like a pithy definition of a of an institution? How would you? How would you define that? Yeah. So, I have two uh, two. I, I, I posit both very brief. Uh, I actually went to Webster's Dictionary, uh, <laughs> and the definition of an institution is a significant practice relationship or organization in a society or culture, right? So I think that includes family. It includes religious institutions, uh, educational institutions, our governmental institutions. You know, obviously we have business institutions as as well. But I think at their best, at least when I think about my own life and uh, the organizing that I do, I think that they're centers of power mm-hmm. to enable people to make change consistent with their values and they're centers of formation. Right. Where people right, right, right. learn um, uh, who they are, what tradition they're part of, what are the values that ought to rule and margin their life. Uh, in my case, what's the justice that I'm committing my life to uh, to try to achieve in some small uh, uh, measure? Um, and you know, when I look back on the institutions like Reverend O'Connor, I am who I am today as an organizer uh, because of the Episcopal Church, the Advocate. Right, right, right. So one one of the ways I, I kind of think about this is is institutions. Uh, one a key feature of institutions is their tools for solving collective problems, and then pursuing over time, in, in many ways, transgenerationally, the kind of goods necessary to sustain a, a, a common life. And hopefully, that common life is just and generous. And obviously. Institutions go wrong when they're pursuing kind of it, it unjust and and tyrannous forms of life, but but that that sense then of institutions allow us together to seek goods that we need to survive, let alone thrive, um, and then also 
that that is in, enabled over time. It, it's kind of way of pooling and transmitting collective wisdom about ha- about how we can act and together to solve these shared problems. Whether it's you know in your father's case, Reverend O'Connor, the kind of questions around farming and agriculture that he was engaged in, or um, you know the the questions of education or the need for food or whatever it is. These are these are these are some of the kind of broader collective problems we face and how do we come together to to address them does that do you think that either of you that kind of your sense that helps kind of shed light on your sense of what institutions are about yeah and and also you know there are places which teach people how to win right you know we my congregation that i serve has members who came from the South during the Great Migration, has people who migrated from the Caribbean, from Western East Africa, from Central America. We're pretty diverse. The common story, even though people came from different places, is that even when conditions are hard and you go through oppressive circumstances, that if you are nurtured by an institution, you can win. You know, some of the women in my congregation tell me what it meant not to be able to use a restroom, you know, to to have to work in somebody's house but use an outhouse because you were not permitted to use any facility in the main building. And their commitment through their churches to when they came to New York to become homeowners and to strive for raising their families a certain way, nurtured by churches which said, you're not defined by how people saw you. This is how God sees you. And so you have an aspiration to win and to create a certain quality of life for yourself and your family. Right, right, right. So so that's very helpful. Martin, could you speak a bit more then? I mean, I I think Reverend Conner has given a wonderful sense then of the centrality of institutions uh, to kind of creating forms of self-determination um, and, and, and over and against those systems and structures which would take that away. Can you speak a bit more to the place, the centrality? Why, why do institutions matter for democratic politics so much? Because we tend to think of democracy as kind of one person, one vote. It, think about it in quite individualistic terms. But one of the central insights of, of organizing is that institutions matter if democracy is going to go well. Can you just expand on that and, and Give us a bit of the rationale for that. Well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, democratic politics is about power, right? And um, you know, there are three major actors in uh, the in the uh, political arena: the government sector, the corporate sector, and then everybody else. And um, you know, those uh, sectors have very large, very powerful institutions. All right. Right. Can you just give us a story or example of how this works out in practice? Um, so on the Sunday after Easter in 2008, I drove to First Baptist Church, Manassas, for what I thought was going to be you know, a small 20-person house meeting of homeowners who lived within walking distance at Georgetown South, which is a sprawling 800-unit townhome community because people have been complaining about uh, losing their homes to foreclosure. Uh, and in Virginia, you know, you, uh, you, you can lose your home in two weeks. They send you a foreclosure notice and it's a property rights state. And uh, the clock starts ticking. Not when you comes, the notice comes to your house. It's when the, uh, they stamp it at the office. So people were just losing their houses right and left as the economy was collapsing. Uh, and I pulled into the parking lot and it was jammed. There were over 300 people there, desperate, with stories of uh, being on the phone and on their landline at the same time, trying to negotiate forbearance on one line and being told on the other line uh, that their house uh, had been foreclosed and they had to be out uh, in two, two days. And folks wanted to talk to a housing counselor. And fortunately, we had trained a team of leaders at... Uh, 
at uh, First Baptist to start listening. We began hearing the conspiracy between the uh, of the banks to uh, write mortgages that pe- that were uh, predestined to fail, um, and there was no government. It was a huge government uh, deregulation that allowed the mortgage industry to write these kinds of um, uh, mortgages. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase had all written mortgages that um, you know put people in variable rate mortgages. Uh, with a floor, it couldn't go below 7%, but there was no ceiling. So immediately people's interest rates went up and they lost their houses and they had no way to fight back. Right. And so Voice, the IAF organization, came together and ran an action on Senator Mark Warner, who at the time, in a democratically controlled Congress, was a key member of the House Banking Committee and right. uh, was widely covered by the Washington Post. Uh, we personalized it on Jeff Immelt and... Um, uh, uh, Brian Moynihan uh, and Jamie Dimon. And then literally the next day, uh, Reverend Clyde Ellis and I from Mount Olive Baptist Church flew down to Charlotte to attend the annual meeting of uh, Bank of America, supported by the IAF organizations in North Carolina. Right. And I don't know what, I, I think it was Providence. God, God intervened in this day because there's usually a time in the um, annual shareholders meetings where, uh, you know, they uh, magnanimously call for shareholder input. And Reverend Ellis stood up with two very large uh, file cases of homeowners' uh, uh, loan applications or applications for um, uh, refinancing um, in his arms that people hadn't gotten any answer to for 90 days. So Reverend Ellis, a retired major in the Army, rose to the microphone and looked up at um, Brian Moynihan and said, Mr. Moynihan, I learned two things in the military. You can delegate authority, but you can't delegate responsibility. So I'm here to ask you, will you take responsibility for my people of Prince William County who are losing their homes by the thousands? Because I want you to know, I didn't give 25 years of my life to defend this behavior. And Moynihan was flustered. He didn't know what to do. All of his board is watching. And within five seconds, he turned to Reverend Ellis and said, I pledge to you that I will make things right in Prince William County. Here's the person that reports directly to me who's going to work with you. That led to over $250 million of principal reduction. Thousands of people, uh, homes were saved, an investment of $15 million in affordable housing, and another uh, investment of uh, $2 million in an equity fund to help us restore home ownership there. Right. So, the, so the, the key thing there is you, you've got this powerful alliance between state and market the individual outside of institutions is naked before them. They're entirely subject to how they're acted upon by the state and market. It's only in institutions and in then coalitions of those institutions coming together can they, then you have the agency and capacity to force change and, and bring accountability for how state and market are acting to utterly denude us, in this case, of the very conditions of shelter and basic basic needs. Because we've done a good power analysis in order to fight back against institutions that have so much more power than we do. We have to build our own power. And every institution has a little bit of power. They organize uh-huh. people and money every week. And as Reverend O'Connor indicated, when you aggregate those institutions – you uh, exponentially increase the power that's available to the members of those institutions to fight back against banks or utilities or a corrupt police um, right. department or you know a, a government agency uh, uh, that, that refuses to address food deserts in, in Queens. Right. 
Right. Reverend O'Connor, could I ask you, I mean, you've, you've touched on this already, but can you say a little bit more about the kind of centrality, particularly in black struggles for liberation of, of, the, of the church and give us some sense of the history of, of that? So let, that's, let, I think that's a, that's a very key example of what yeah. we've been talking about. So let, let me give you a story from, from Southeast Queens. Right. We, in, in the early 2000s, through a, one of our IF organizations, we discovered when we asked what were some of the issues affecting you, that many homeowners had homes where when it rained, there was water in their basements, their cars got flooded. It turned out that the market and government had collaborated to create this situation for about 600,000 residents. One of our leaders had bought, had worked hard, bought himself a nice car, and the car got flooded, and he got sick of it. And uh, he and others of our leaders decided to organize. Now, initially, when we started the process, there were maybe around 15, 20 issues identified or, or, or places where the flooding occurred. The more we talked with our leaders across our institutions, we were able to discover that this wasn't just an isolated small problems, but that multiple people were experiencing it. So our leaders created a map and put pinholes you know, those colored pins on the map of Southeast Queens. And then they said, well, since the banks and the construction industry had collaborated with government, who had to, to cause this problem? Who had the power to fix it? We discovered that the Department of Environmental Protection in New York City had a $1.2 billion budget and that they were responsible for stormwater and sewage. And so our leaders, led by the man who had, you know, his name is Deacon Oliver, who had the flooding in his car and another woman named Keisha who had flooding in her basement. We went to the Department of Environmental Protection. And look, because you have had this church experience, the, the, the second in command at DEP told us this wasn't their problem. This was God's problem because God built the aquifer so that the aquifer drained into the black community. And that's why the flooding <laughs> happened. You're well, kidding me. He actually said that. Yeah, he actually said that. Oh and goodness. our leaders were incensed. I was incensed. Right. But to the credit of Deacon Oliver, Deacon Oliver said, Rev, we're here. We're with the people who have the power to change this. And he said, you should tell them that God sent you here. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the, the discussion changed from... Uh, all right, what a stupid comment to we're here because we want something to be done. And at that time, there was a commissioner by the name of Emily Lloyd, who was a boss of the deputy commissioner, who said, we're going to do something about this. Right. Um, you know, through our institutions, our leaders created more sites where there was flooding, storm drains, streets, basements. And she committed publicly to make the investment. And so far, about $2 billion has been spent to create, to change a 40-year problem, not because one person preached from the pulpit, but because we taught our leaders the power both of relationships and through relationships to create power. And they saw 
a tangible change in their life. So, and so there's, so, there's something there's something there very important about how it's it, it's not just the sheer fact of the existence of institutions, but it's organized institutions. It's institutions coming together. They've both got the connection on the ground. What is happening? What's the flooding? What? Where is it that they're able to kind of build that meaningful picture because there's the real relationship to, to these people in this place at this time. But then also that it, it becomes the conduit then to go forward and identify the the figs in this case in in the government who a uh, local government who have the power to to change things and that something there you've got the horizontal relations between institutions organized the roots in in the community and then also the the ability to transmit that into vertical relations in, in either addressing kind of corporate sector or or government so that's a I think it's a very helpful kind of story of opening out how institutions are operating in that space, somewhere between the market sector, the state sector, and what we might call kind of civil society or, or, or the third sector. Yeah, and if the third sector isn't there, the other two don't have to do anything. Right. While we were doing this flooding campaign, the politicians were just talking, but they had talked for 40 years. <laughs> right. Nothing yeah. happened until our leaders claimed their power and decided to act. Right, right, right. Luke, I would observe that um, whether it's Jesse Jackson uh, declaring that, you know, for, to people, you know, uh, in a democracy that you are somebody, I am somebody, they're, they're being taught in their institutions that they are the children of God or they are the, you know, the, the inheritors of a democracy in a union. Right, that you are a person and you have dignity and you have rights, and the challenge that we that we that those institutions and organizing puts back on them is okay. Let's organize and build the power to demand those rights because without you know power and institutions, Hannah Arendt said they don't exist. Rights are they're just an abstraction. Hmm. All right. Right. So, but yeah, right. We can have these kind of notions of rights, but but unless they're realised through shared political action, this was kind of Aaron's key point. Yeah. Then these rights are just notional. They never, and as we see in in her own experience in, under the the Nazis, they just disappear into thin air unless you've got the power through organised institutions to actually right. ensure that those those rights are living things, and the, and the kind of the the institutions provide the the means then of of cultivating and and handing on those kind of things like freedom of speech freedom of assembly but if we we can have notions of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly but unless they're embedded unless people are able to act together in some kind of institutional form then th those are just kind of abstract commit they're tokenistic or symbolic and, and they don't actually do any work in the world right. yeah so so just martin just building on that like can you say some of the characteristic because we we can use this term institutions generically but can you say some of the characteristics then of the differences between the institutions in the third sector or civil society sector and those in the kind of market sector and those in the government sector like how what would you see as some of the characteristic differences between between how institutions operate and their commitments and goals in those different arenas yeah, I, I think it, it's based on interests. You know, the interest of the market sector is very clear. It's to maximize profit, right? Um, you know, how, how does the market sector view people? They're an expense. And if you're trying to maximize profit, you uh, do as much as you can through efficiency to eliminate that expense. People are expendable. Um, and increasingly, uh, the government sector, and I think we've seen this throughout you know, our history, but there have been points where uh, in our history, where, where government actually has been an agent of the interests of families and ordinary citizens, whether it's, you know, during the New Deal or, um, you know, certain points during the civil rights movement and the like. But, you know, there's the, co the collusion between government and the market sector to uh, pursue the market sector's interests and maximize the market sector's interest. I mean, this is repeated throughout our history, right, from slavery to um uh to you know what we see happening with um you know you know large financial institutions now so there's uh you know um it, uh, the government you know sector jet uh has been corrupted by that relationship i think 
And so it's really the, the third or uh, civic sector and their institutions, they're directly connected to people who have to organize to fight for the interests of ordinary people, right? right. That's the only hope right. that we have. Mm-hmm. And I right. think that's our job in the IF, which is to try to uh, rebuild that civic sector that so there's that, that sense of the, you've got specific issues, concrete issues you're trying to address, but the kind of broader frame along with the whole host, we can put in social movements or a yeah. whole range yeah. of other kind of forms of democratic politics there. But the reweaving of civil society, the reweaving of this kind of institutional ecology, mm-hmm. which actually provides some break and resistance then to the dominance of either being treated, as you say, as expendable or in the market sector as a, simply a commodity or, or kind of you, you know, get to extract value from. And then in, in the government sector, being treated simply as a kind of administrative unit, which inherently individualizes and wants to treat everyone simply as a kind of item on a governmental statistic. Um, and that sense of how the role of institutions in the civic sector as taking seriously that we are persons in relation where where we we receive who we are and our dignity through the quality and character of our relations with people and the prioritization of society over and against either market considerations or governmental administrative considerations that 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 is key to to democratic life reverend o'connor and look if i might add you know just say in our organizing just the concept that people matter Mm -hmm. that you know, I'm not just a unit, but that I have ideas. I have a real experience. And I have uh, solutions to some of the things that challenge us. In in my years with the IAF, the, the power of the experience has been seeing leaders come up with solutions to issues which impacted them and affected them. Because mm-hmm. often that it's the, the policies that kind of come down from on high, they're not actually attentive to the lived real experience. It, it, it tends to um, kind of treat people as these in these kind of unit terms. And, and that, that sense then of actually paying attention to the people affected by policies, they have wisdom to share to to about the conditions under which they live and work and and then but to get people to listen it takes agitation it takes organizing it takes working together to to do that can i can i just um we use the word respect and just just the concept of starting with respect is a foundation of being able to create real relationships and real power right so so monty just get building on that can you Talk a little bit about. I mean, the other approaches to organising focus specifically on neighbourhoods. Um, some, obviously, unions focus on the workplace. You know, some have in the past just focused on families as the unit and and kind of organised people around that. Can you talk a little bit about how and why IF came to focus specifically on institutions um, and 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 why that is? And, and obviously, churches have been key institutions in that. Um, so why, in your view, do institutions matter? I mean, we've, we've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but but why do institutions matter for community organizing specifically? Well, I think three reasons. Um, they're centers of power. You know, it's, uh, you know, they organize people and money. Uh, and when you aggregate those institutions, you exponentially expand the power that people have to go up against, you know, the institutions in the market and government sector that are oppressing their uh, families. Um, and as Reverend O'Connor said, you know, these are institutions that ordinary people lead and own. It's theirs. They, they exercise agency through them. And then, um, they're centers of values. They have a vision for justice. The church hasn't, most churches, how long has First Jamaica been uh, at its current location? 1662. Wow. They're generational. Right with the same vision of justice, you know, across generations doing, you know, pursuing it in different ways. Um, so I, I think those are the reasons, you know, that we, uh, and, and, you know, and not just, and then, then it's where leaders are developed too. Right. Right. right, 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 right. Um, right. Whereas, you know, trying to organize folks, disparate individuals, is just hugely, hugely problematic. Right. You know, what, what's right. the glue that holds them together? 
And it's yeah, this institutional yeah. affiliation. So we, we've been talking uh, quite, there's a danger we might po- paint a kind of overly rosy picture of institutions. We've been kind of quite boosterish, uh, boosterish about, about them. Um, I, this, is a, this is a slightly academic distinction, but I think it's a helpful one. The, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre makes this distinction between institutions and practices, and practices need institutions to sustain them. For example, education and, and the goods it serves are sustained by a school or a university. Likewise, the practice of medicine is, is obviously sustained over time by the Institute of the Hospital. But McIntyre points to how institutions, while necessary, often become the enemy of good practice. They, they seek the external goods of money, power, status that keep the institution going. And, and in pursuit of these, they can often end up undermining good practice. So for example, external interests of the hospital makes medicine all about profit, not about promoting health. What do you make of this distinction? And, and where do you see it played out in organizing? And, or how can organizing help address it? Martin, if I begin with you. I mean, I think it uh, exemplifies the universal that we teach, the world as it is, and the world as it should be, and the tension that we confront in organizing. And we're trying to move the world as it should be towards uh, the world as it is towards the world as it should be. Right. Institutions are flawed, um, but they're necessary and important to our democracy. So when Durham Can took up the fight to hold a mirror up to Duke University around the wages that it paid its, uh, its essential workers, um, it was challenging Duke to ask itself, is it, is it living up to its values? And, you know, if we hadn't had the power to be able to do that, we couldn't help reform that institution. So, you know, I, I think we're pretty realistic. At least I'm realistic about it. I don't look at institutions in, with rose-colored glasses. Right. Um, so there's always that ten- ten- tension there. Re- Reverend O'Connor, you... And I, I, you know, I, I, I think something the, the IF teaches, which is often hard for institutions, is a concept of, disorganizing and reorganizing, that most institutions were put together to address a particular set of circumstances. And that after a while, you can become so focused on your existence without without having a sense of mission and purpose. And what, what good organizing does is that it forces you to ask, why do we exist? And sometimes it means changing course in a in a in a totally different way and, and moving in a new direction. Right. In the yeah. case of my own particular congregation, you know, when I came here twenty eight years ago, we were all inwardly focused. As one of my colleagues calls it navel gazing. You know, that we're so wonderful and we exist for ourselves. And most of the money was spent to make it comfortable for those who were in the institution. And we weren't relating to the community or the neighborhood. And the the provocation of organizing, and, and sometimes it wasn't easy because the organizer, you know, looks at you and says, you know, you're wasting your time, and you're useless. I mean, to, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very polite, polite bunch. <laughs> and, 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 and I don't want you to have too much editing, so I won't put out a word for you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it 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 made me wrestle with the why, and I, and and I think over the journey, the practice of being able to listen. Listen to people within your institution. Listen to people in your neighborhood. Listen to what colleagues in other institutions are experiencing and going through is fundamental to having relevant institutions. In our case, you know, I keep saying to our folks, there's a reason why we haven't disappeared. Because there are many good institutions which became irrelevant, couldn't pivot, and disappeared. No, I think that, that point about in, 
remaining relevant through listening to the realities of people's lives is comes into the rule in, in the first rule of organizing is is in the organizing is in the first instance disorganizing. Obviously, these are wonderful examples of of, of positive institutions. I think there's a sense in which often, though, and, and I've certainly experienced this in the church, we see it in unions, we see it in a lot of institutions, NGOs, where the institution and the membership of the institution, in a sense, are made to serve the interests of the office holders rather than their interests and, and what it means for them as members of that institution to flourish. And so the whole thing kind of either gets very focused on a charismatic leader or a single figure or becomes a kind of procedural process where we're just doing things you know to fulfill certain kind of bureaucratic commitments rather than there being any kind of living life um and and, and a shared sense of of that it, that that institution being owned by its membership and serving its members and their interests what are what are some of the ways when we when we end up with those kinds of institutions we can kind of agitate them uh, and and t- one of the, some of the ways in which they get broken out, they get disorganized so they can be reorganized around the genuine membership. What are some of the, what some of the tools for that that you've learned and, and some examples of, of, of how that has been done? Organizing teaches accountability. Religious institutions don't want to name accountability, and yet mm-hmm. all of life is a, has accountability connected with it you know we we use nice words like stewardship and stewardship campaigns but we don't want accountability so uh, a, a a part of it is looking for people who have an appetite for life and vibrancy who are willing to be accountable and then who have the discipline to realize that it's just to get anything to work you have to put in the time and the energy and the effort to make it work. And there are going to be setbacks on the journey, but if you if you keep grinding at it, you get somewhere. You know, we we have a lot of folks now who, because we're in this instant age, who think, well, if I bless it it means it's going to be successful. Well, <laughs> kind of prosperity gospel yeah, that's reference. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and so- I, and I, I also think that we're past, we're in a post-denominational era right. that what really people are looking for is vital institutions. Right. Does this institution listen to me? Is it committed to acting? Is it committed to building real relationships with me? All right, but I think one of our one of our kind of crises of the moment is, in a sense, we've kind of lost an, our, our, our institutional imagination. Where we, you know, it seems incredibly tiresome and boring to turn up on a rainy Thursday evening to to kind of sort out the parish finance committee. That that just seems an unimaginable heavy weight to bear uh, to, 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 to many folk. But I think this, this kind of, there is this broader crisis, you know, in, in many ways we can find good people. We can, uh, you know, raise money. Um, there's, there's lots of creative ideas out there, but, but there's this kind of crisis of trust in institutions and, and institutions that they're racist or they're patriarchal or they're oppressive in some way. And, and we can't, in a sense, imagine the institutions we need to address and solve the problems we face. You know, we, for example, we, we, we know we have to educate children, but there's basic disagreements about what schools are for, how, what to teach, uh, how to train teachers. And so how, how would you, you know, how do we cultivate a renewal of institutional imagination? And, 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 and what, what might that look like? Somebody has a bad experience with one institution and uses it to paint everybody. You know, as I tell my members, I said, listen, if you judge me by one day, then you're not being fair to me. Those who are committed to being in relationship realize that over time, there is much greater benefit to being in relationship than 
whatever might happen in an isolated incident. Now, to be honest, in the in the time in which we live, an individual incident can become so publicized that it makes people not want to deal with you. So there has to be a commitment to engaging. And, uh, you know, I'm worried about the people who only get their connections through a gadget because it means somebody's feeding you something. And you only know a really small slice about that person because you have not really spent time relating. I think I mean I think one of the key things goes back to what you're saying before Evan O'Connor the it's this it's this combination of accountability and relationship if we just have relationship that obviously can be exploited it's when there's there is meaningful commitment to 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 ongoing engaged relationship combined with openness accessibility and accountability on the path of leadership and those those with power in in an institution, and that's where I think that's that's often people are, are being asked to make a commitment to an institution, but the people in charge of the institution are neither accessible nor accountable, and that's a disaster. And I think that is you know it's, it's the combination of both both of those things coming together. Um, so uh, to- that's a great point, Luke. And you know one of the things that we teach in the IF. Is a difference between public and private relationships, which which is which is important. So I say to my members, all right, you know, most pastors would like your members to really like you, but I thought, well, you know, it's a daily occurrence, right? You know, something happens and you may not like me, but because we're in this public relationship, you you should know. I'm going to show up and do what's needed with you and your family. And I'm expecting the same of you. Some will have good days when when it's easy, and we have days when it's it's hard. You know, one of the, 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 the things for me when it works is when, when I have to show up, because I understand that this is a public relationship. And some of the suspicion of institutions has broken down because people want a private relationship from a public institution. Right, right, right. That's key. So, so Martin, if we if we got, we can kind of build vibrant institutions, but obviously we talked about earlier the importance of kind of being broad-based and building relationship between institutions. And and obviously a central task then of organizing is is building these links so they can collaborate together towards shared ends. Can you kind of comment on how that's done um, and, and what do you think makes for, for a strong coalition of, of institutions? I mean, I, I think this the bedrock, the foundation – uh, for that is the slow, patient work of organizing, which is meeting with, talking to, uh, beginning to establish a public relationship with, and understanding the interests of other institutional leaders, and trying to figure out, is there a common ground? Is there some shared anger about what you'd like to see changed? And if so, is there understanding that I can't do it by myself? You know, we got to come together collectively if we're going to uh, address the affordable housing problem in Queens. Not one, none, none of us can do it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then can you can you forge a measure of trust over time because that has to be earned and in action um, where uh, you can take on really hard battles and and also establish um, reciprocity, right? In in that relationship, right? Because not. Not every issue that every organization takes on is the issue of everybody who's in the organization. But everybody understands that if you show up for me, quid pro quo, I'm going to show up for you. But it's not just that transaction. It's I believe in you. I know you. I know this. why this is so important to you. And, you know, and I'm willing to stand with you. And I think Queen's Power and Reverend Connor could probably say more 
uh, about this. And I could say a little bit about what we've done in, in our most recent new organization in North Carolina, Wake County, uh, One Wake. But, you know, it was, it was hundreds of individual meetings or thousands of individual meetings and, uh, with institutional leaders um, beginning to uh, create a vision of what could be. That what what that was not yet, Reverend O'Connor. Can I just ask? So, I mean, you've you're you're part of the Presbyterian Church. It's it, there's a kind of narrative of decline that often accompanies mainline denominations. Um, can you say something about both? On the one hand, the kind of you've you've kind of cultivated a church that's gone through a congregation that's gone through quite big changes, and and now, as you said, is is a kind of very multicultural. Um, church, can you say something about the particular journey of how you've negotiated, nurtured that change in the institution that you you have charge of? But then, more broadly, what what kind of lessons for mainline um, denominational churches do you think organising has in terms of congregational development, healthy institutions? You know, I let me go back to to Jamaica when I came out of seminary. You know, Carl Barth and Kierkegaard were really big in my mind. Right. And I, you know, went into the pulpit and tried to speak about them. And after three weeks, three congregants who looked at me and they said, son, I was 20, I was 22 years old then. They said, well, that may work at a seminary in Kingston, but you're not relating to us. Right. So if you want to do that, you won't be here long. <laughs> but but if you that's want, accountability, yeah, self interest. Want to be here? If you want to be here, we can help you, and we will teach you how to pastor people and and we had an arrangement we had particular days for the week i went with two of them and they introduced me to people and took me around and uh, so i learned that when you try to do anything in a congregation the foundation of it is relationships and then you got to do the work, and, and the work is, you know, in the, in the reform tradition, we said reform always reforming. So, you know, I'm always asking God, what should we be doing now? And you know, the IF would call it disorganizing and reorganizing. It's a constant process, and in the context of the Presbyterian Church, the seminaries would do well in finding other ways of preparing people for ministry apart from just good traditional theological education. Most pastors don't understand what power is. They don't understand the difference between a problem and an issue, and they don't understand what it means to lead. That if there's nobody following you, you're not a leader. (laughs) There's a there's I was talking to a um Jewish political theorist friend of mine. We're, we're he's doing some work around Jeremiah and the shift from Jeremiah one uh to Jeremiah twenty nine and this sense of Jeremiah one, what's called on there's this this constant motif of kind of build, plant, marry in Jeremiah twenty nine, but Jeremiah one there's a sense of they have to lose the temple the priests and the land, mm-hmm. uh, which is really what makes them who they are before mm-hmm. they can hear the new thing, which is, you know, in Babylon, this terrible place they're in exile to, of build, plant, marry. And so before the new thing can come to be, there's this profound loss. And I think that's having the courage to ask in our churches or in any institution, you know, what are our temples, what are our land, what are our priests that seem so central to who we are mm. that actually we have to give up if we're going to be renewed and, and be reformed in your say and, and enter new forms of life. I think that's a very deep challenge in the contemporary moment. Um, and it's a spiritual pastoral challenge as well as a kind of understanding one's context as well. 
You're the guest preacher for next Sunday, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. Really good. <laughs> Reverend O'Connor, Martin, it's been great talking to you here on the Listen, Organize, Act podcast and this very rich conversation about institutions. Really appreciate your, your time with me today. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, in which I explored the role of local institutions in democratic politics, why institutions are key to sustaining basic freedoms, and how organizing builds relationship between institutions to develop broad-based coalitions to address issues of shared concern and generate meaningful democratic change. As with other episodes, there'll be suggestions for further reading that you can download from the show notes on the website. That's www.ormondcenter.com backslash listen dash organize dash act dash podcast. Do sign up at the website for news about events and resources related to the podcast or to send me questions. For now, let me say goodbye, and I hope you join me next time as I continue this journey through the different elements of community organising and how it embodies a distinctive vision of democratic politics. Mm-hmm.